I think I think people are a little bit shocked uh, at the mountain course that when you get out there, it's like, you know, guys, you'll hear them chatting in the background to each other, uh, military pilots and stuff, and they're going, I never went over 60 knots today. I, I don't think I've ever done that on a flight. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show by helicopter aircrew for a helicopter aircrew. Each week we explore the world of helicopters with the people that fly them and support them. Check out the latest on the blog at rotarywingshow.com or subscribe on iTunes. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. There's been a few weeks in the making, but we've got our first show out the door and uh, we're on a roll. So by way of introduction, I'm a ex-Australian Army pilot now living in Brisbane, Australia. So my background was flying Iroquois and Blackhawks with a little bit of fixed wing flying before that. These days I have a few different things on the go but uh, still get to fly as an instructor, mainly on R22s and Hughes 300 airframes out of Redcliffe Aerodrome. So you might be wondering what this show is all about. Some of the best lessons I've learned about flying have come from talking with and hanging out with other pilots in the crew room or the hangar. Around the world, this is where hard-won knowledge is passed down informally from pilot to pilot as stories or yarns. There is a treasure trove of information out there amongst our industry just like this that can make us all better helicopter operators if we can access it. But the problem is that so many helicopter pilots and crewmen are operating in remote locations or small companies and have none or limited access to the people that have been there, done that, and lived to tell the tale. This show aims to, in a a very small way, to fill that gap and be a resource that helicopter crews all over the world can use to learn more about the profession, uh, to get better and to fly safer. Over the course of the show episodes, we'll be hearing from aircrew and aviation professionals from as wide a background as I can put together. If there is someone that you would love to hear interviewed, then drop me a note via the website, rotarywingshow.com, and let me know. I'll do what I can to get them on as a future guest. On the website, you'll also be able to comment and ask questions on the different episodes, so I encourage you to share your thoughts and insights too. And look, who knows, it might be the information that you share that saves a life one day. You can find out a bit more about me and what I'm trying to achieve in later episodes, but today's interview runs a little longer, so I want to get you right into it. This episode's chat is with Peter Costa of Canadian Helicopters HNZ Top Flight Operation. Top Flight is a helicopter mountain flying school in British Columbia on the western side of Canada. Look, Peter has thousands of hours flying in the Rockies, and teaching pilots from all over the world some of the art and science of mountain flying. As you'll hear in this interview, Peter is very much the gentleman pilot and shares a lot of his time and experience with us. And just quickly before we hear from Peter, this episode is sponsored by trainmorepilots.com. If you belong to an organization that trains pilots and aircrew, and if you'd like to get more people through the door, then check out the free resources at trainmorepilots.com. Okay, here we go. So sit back enjoy and pick up some flying tips along the way we join peter a couple of minutes into our phone call been smoking hot here and and just south of us in washington state they have the um they're fighting the largest fire in the history of the united states Wow, okay, I haven't seen any of that coming on the news. So, so let's talk about location then. So, well, hey, on Peter, before we start talking about where you are in, in British Columbia and, and the setup there at the the Mountain Flying School, how did you get in, into flying? Was it something you always keen to do, or did you fall into it? You know, I, I would love to. I would love to say, oh yeah, I always wanted to be a pilot. 
when I was younger, I was definitely interested. I, I liked, you know, my, my father was, we'd go for a drive on, you know, <laughs> multiple times a week, it seemed. And we'd usually end up at an airport. My father was very interested in it. He had flown before the World War, before the Second World War, uh, just as a private pilot. They flew gliders and stuff. But uh, And then during the war, everything went to, to heck, obviously. And um, he was always interested in it. And, and he certainly pursued the interest in aviation. And as I, when I turned 16, he, he was keen to have me get a private pilot's license and, and supported me in doing that. And then, uh, you know, girls became much more interesting and, yep. and, uh, and, uh, and making some money. So, uh, you know, I just kind of got your average job after school and then, uh, you know, but it was still kind of, and the, you know, yeah, but what am I really going to do? So I, I settled on, uh, um, maybe going to university and join, being forestry, having something to do with forestry. Because I thought, well, that would allow me to maybe occasionally fly. Yeah. And then uh, when I saw the requirements for university, it's like, hmm, what else could I do? <laughs> How else can I do this? <laughs> and uh, and my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, and my dad um, got me a $25 gift certificate to go for a helicopter ride at one of the one of the training schools and this was down near Vancouver which is where I grew up in that area and uh they uh I, I was hooked I mean I went for this helicopter ride and my god that was the most expensive Chris or uh birthday present my father gave me because it was like dad oh geez can I do this so you know I contributed some money he contributed some money and I'm not always saying it was fair who contributed yep. what because I think he contributed a lot more but um I became a helicopter pilot and then uh so strictly civilian, I, I, I never, never joined the military. It did, the thought did occur to me and I thought, oh, you, you got to hear you, you have to have a degree in something. So you have to go to university four year degree and then you would start flying. And I thought, nah, no, I don't really want to do that. So I was uh, uh, 20 years old. I think I started when I was 19. I was 20 years old looking for a job like everybody else. And, um, it, it has not changed to this day in terms of, of the effort required to get that first job. And, and everywhere you would go, it's like, oh, great. So you're a helicopter pilot. Um, how much experience do you have? Yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, you know, I've just in, in Canada, we have a hundred hour commercial license. So it's a hundred hours long, a uh, hundred hours of flight training. And then um, I don't know, not, not, not very many hours of ground school. Um, and, and so, um, you know, they said, oh, well, you know, hey, we'd love to hire you, but, you know, we're really looking for somebody with experience. And, and it's catch-22, isn't it? You need that it experience. It is, it is, because, you know, the last thing you want to say to them is, well, how the heck am I going to get experience if, if you won't give me a job? It's like, well, we don't really care, but not here. So <laughs> um, it was still, because now we're going back to the early 80s, it was still a little bit frontiersy here, in especially the further north you went in uh, in Canada. And I did recognize that that's where I'm going to have to look for work because there was no chance of getting work in the cities. They they had their pick and choose of whoever they wanted to hire. News helicopters there there were none at the time when I got my license. It was just unheard of in Canada. EMS uh, EMS helicopter flying. 
is reserved in Canada, mostly for the retired, yep. because uh, that's where you go when you retire and, and you, uh, you, you have a great schedule, you know, you work a couple of shifts a week and then you go home. And, and so they also have their pick and choose of, of really experienced guys to do this. So, so that's not going to work. So it's like, okay, uh, bush operation, you know, go ahead up north, uh, work in, in the utility market. Um, you know, flying crews in and out to fires, flying crews in and out to the oil, uh, the oil fields and, you know, doing forestry work, doing geo moving geologists around. And, and essentially that is what I got into, but not without spending probably a good month sweeping the hangar floor, yep. cleaning windows, keeping absolutely my mouth shut not saying anything good, bad, boo. I was at work before the boss got there and I did not dare leave till after he left. After a month, they put me on the payroll, which was pretty <laughs> minimal because they could. It wasn't like I was going to go somewhere else. Um, but anyway, after a few months, that that parlayed into um, uh, I started flying on a Bell 47, which ironically I trained on, so it worked out well. And uh, initially the work was from an ATCO trailer in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a mosquito-infested swamp. And uh, every morning I would fly uh, um, service men out to, um, and I use the word servicemen very loosely, I lose, use that term. These were some kids no older than me, and we were tasked with keeping this oil field running and keeping those pump jacks going. And so every morning we would fire up the, uh, the Bell 47 and I would get to fly all of two or three kilometers to the site and I'd land and they would change the, the, the graphs that they used to log how much oil went through the pump and this and that. And after 45 minutes or so, we'd fire up, we'd fly the next one. We had about seven of these and that was it for the day. And they'd just be short hops, and a couple hops. of Ks each? A absolutely. They were a couple of Ks each. I mean, it's going to be hard to gather any amount of hours this way, but Surprisingly enough, with with all the little other things that happened to come up, we had to fly supplies in and out of camp. And and uh, um, at the end of the season, I had 500 hours. So that kind of got me started. And, and, and then I, I worked for a couple other smaller operators, but they put me on turbine helicopters and uh, eventually started with a um, with one of the bigger companies in Canada at the time, I was really unaware of how the industry worked in Canada. So I started with a company called Associated Helicopters, and they operated in the province of Alberta and uh, hit it off well, did a good job. Um, that company turned out that company was owned by Okanagan Helicopters, which eventually became Canadian Helicopters. So um, almost 29 years later, here I am. Um, and uh, I've stuck with the one operator because I did work for some smaller operators initially, and I, I didn't see that going anywhere on in the long term. I, I was um, I was pretty interested in being a good helicopter pilot, and I saw that some of these smaller companies, God bless them for hiring me, wasn't going to lead me there. You know, there was a lot of um, Overload the helicopter, you know, do this job no matter what it takes. Uh, oh, you don't want commercial competition. Pressure. Yeah, there, there was a lot of pressure and, and partly my own fault maybe for being open to that initially. But then I very quickly realized that eh, this is not the way to do business. And uh, luckily got started, you know, it 
the company I worked with got bought out by Okanagan Helicopters, which was the big operator in Canada at the time, and turned into Canadian Helicopters, and I just kind of stuck it out. And most days are good. Other days, I want to. <laughs> after after twenty nine years, it's 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 they're they're a good solid company. Um, one of the things that I really liked is maintenance. Uh, maintenance was just not an issue. If it was broke, it got fixed, and you didn't fly until it was. Uh, sure. Training was not an issue with this company, and that was really a novel thing for me because the other companies, again, you know, God bless them for hiring me, but uh, it was like, oh, have you ever done this before? Well, well, no no time like the present to learn. And, and so you think, oh, okay, great. The boss is going to go flying with me. It's like, no, <laughs> just get out there. And, just got to figure it out yourself. <laughs> this is how you do it. Make sure this doesn't happen. And, and, and uh, you know, like I say, uh, that, that was a very sharp learning curve. But then uh, with Canadian, uh, they had good training. They had great maintenance. Um, and you did an instructor riding along the way? Uh, I did, but not till I was, um, gosh, I think I had seven or 8,000 hours. Um, you know, in Canada, it's a bit different. You don't get an instructor's rating to train low-time pilots. It just doesn't happen in Canada. I mean, it can be done at 250 hours. You can go out and get an instructor's rating, but... If you got a job where you got an extra 150 hours, why would you quit that to go instructing? <laughs> so yeah, sure. so um, that is relatively uncommon in Canada, and, and most instructors are, are fairly seasoned guys, and, and you've sort of got two categories, and that is um, guys that uh, will work during the summer when it's busy here, and they'll be on fires and exploration and all this stuff. And then through the winter, they come back to the big centers like Vancouver and whatnot, and and they decide that, uh, oh, you know, why don't I just pick up a little training work, you know, a couple days a week? And the training schools, you know, it oh, they'll pay you twenty five dollars an hour to train and stuff like that. And and of course, at that time, I already had a job, like. Why would I quit and do that for less money? So, um, yeah. and, and I think a lot of people feel that way, but it's becoming more common now that guys are getting just enough hours to get the instructor's rating and, and doing some instructing. But by and large, you know, the instructor that I trained with and flew with, um, uh, you know, he was a 16, 17,000 hour helicopter pilot. He'd flown his entire career for for one of the big helicopter companies and, and he was now retired doing that. And that that's more common what you see in Canada. And, uh, and then there's the career pilots, uh, the career instructors, the guys that, you know, they've, they've done, they've done 15, 20 years in, in the industry. And now they're going to, I hate to use the term semi-retire because my, my cohorts will hang me, but <laughs> um, at least you're not away. You know, you're, you've got a relatively, same it's a steady, steady stable yeah position. a lot more steady a lot more stable and, and and that's not to say that we still don't go out in the field occasionally because even in our very very large company you know they're pretty organized they got everything and then sometimes it's like oh man you guys at the school can you spare a guy we need a guy to go in here and do this because you know so and so got sick and and, and that were that's great for us because we actually get a as instructors, and we've been instructors for a fairly long time, the group of us, uh, we still get a chance to get out in the field and, and see how, um, I, don't, I don't want to call it real flying, but essentially... Yeah, you get to escape the circuit, I know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Weeks and weeks of the and, circuit is great to head on out. And yeah, and, and, and you know what? We do the recurrent training for the company. We do the annual recurrency training, and it's good to 
remember what it's like for some of these guys out in the field where the conditions aren't as great and, and you're working long hours and stuff. And, and it, you know, it makes you a little more understanding that when they show up, it's like these are the backbone of the company. We are, you know, some of the aides to their profession, uh, us as instructors. But, uh, but these guys that are out there working every day, they, they are what make the company. And uh, absolutely. And, 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 you know, we we pride ourselves in, in trying to remember that, that when they come here, uh, yeah, they are a little intimidated. Uh, absolutely. Uh, they don't need to be. But we try to make them as comfortable as possible. And, and, and we do their training and then we say, hey, guys, you guys are the ones out there making the money. We're just spending it on behalf of the company. And uh, and, uh, you know, we respect their uh, their desire to to get through the training and, and get back into the field safely. So, uh, Oh, people, let's, let's talk then. Let's, let's move in and talk about the training then and, and uh, H&Z top flight. So you want to describe the setup there, where the airfield is, what the environment is? Absolutely. It looks a little bit like a desert. Believe it or not, we're, we're in, uh, as you had in your little paper here, we're about a four-and-a-half-hour drive west of Vancouver, slightly north – or sorry, not west, east – We'd be out in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, we are east. We're northeast ever so slightly. We're about 40 miles from the U.S.-Canada border, so it's Washington State to the south. We are at the very, very north end of the Sonoran Desert, which is the desert that holds uh, um, Death Valley. Uh, it is fairly hot and dry here in the summer, um, that being a bit of an understatement the last two weeks. We have mountains immediately adjacent to the airport on the east and west. And uh, north and south, there's a lake to each side of us. And the lake to the north of us is 120 kilometers long. Obviously, it goes for a little ways. Um, as you go further north from the airport here, uh, within 10 miles, there's a lot more tree coverage. And in the area we are at, the mountains have trees. The sort of the, the valley bottom doesn't have so much trees because we're hot and dry. And uh, for us, our first landing for the mountain flying course, specifically for the mountain flying course, is within three or four minutes of the airport. So that makes it incredibly desirable. What elevations are we talking about, Peter? So well, they're not, um... they're not, you know what, that's, that's a good, that's a very good question because we do get asked that quite a bit. And the airport is only at 1,100 feet above sea level. It's not anything spectacular by any stretch of the imagination. But within 15 minutes of us, we have uh, 8,600 feet. And then... With a little bit further away, when because one of the days that we do the mountain course, we will do what we call a glacier trip. It's to another community even further to the northeast of us, uh, about an hour and a half flight. It's called Revelstoke. It's got the highest vertical footage of any ski hill in North America. Um, and we do a part of the mountain course there where we can land up as high as pretty much 10,000 feet. And, uh, you know, compared to the U.S., uh, that's those aren't great heights because in the U.S. there's highways that go uh, 12, 13,000 feet. So um, I guess it's a relative height, though. Yeah, it's, it's relative. You know, and, to, and when yeah. we when we're talking mountain flying specifically, it's not the height of the mountain. It's the shape of the terrain that's a concern. Now, the height of the mountain obviously lends another factor, and that is density altitude. And that is a big factor in mountain flying that needs to be considered. But for the instruction purpose, whether I land you on the top of an 8,600-foot mountain or as DDA de La Salle has done, landing on Everest at 29,030 feet, the technique is identical. There is no difference in the technique used to do that. So 
this happens to be a good location weather-wise because it is relatively dry. People come from all over the world here. They're here for two or three weeks to do the mountain course. Um, you don't want to have them sitting on the ground because of weather days. So we get the flying done. Uh, it's not the highest terrain in the world by any stretch of the imagination. A lot of the world is a lot higher than this, but the technique can be taught here or at 4,000 feet. Obviously, there's some um, fun, some lessons to be learned at higher altitude um, that we can go out and do. So, so yeah, that's, that's a little bit of sort of how um, this area was chosen. Uh, another factor, and this is a little-known fact, is Okanagan Helicopters, which was originally the big uh, helicopter company in Canada and, and in the world. They operated all over the world already 30, 40 years ago. Um, they started in the parking lot in front of this hangar in a tiny little shed is where they started. And they had a Bell 47, I think it was a D model. It was one of these open cockpits. You know, nobody, they didn't even wear helmets, headsets, nothing. They, they wore their ball cap and a, and a sweater and, and they would fly these machines around. Um, it actually started here. So that, that had a, obviously a small impact on it. But um, um, it, the area is, is really well suited for, for mountain training in that you can, get the, you can get the desired training done. The weather is generally good. Uh, altitudes are, you know, moderate altitudes, but still effective for the training. Uh, great, great place, great, great place to work. And, and for, for our guests that come here, our, our students or coworkers and stuff that come here, um, it's a really pleasant environment. It's a great little town. It's a touristy town. So in the summer, it gets really busy. In the winter, you could fire a gun on Main Street. Nobody would care. Because uh, uh, I had a look at some of the YouTube videos, and if look, if you're at home listening to this interview, I'd say jump on YouTube and, and look up HZ uh, Top Flight because there's some beautiful videos of the area. Absolutely, and and actually, the the Danish guys have put on some great videos of um, of the mountain flying course, and 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 with no really amounts of detail, but just showing the scenery around, and that's uh, uh, that's wonderful. And and there is, yeah, absolutely, go onto YouTube or just Google it and. And see the area, so uh, uh, really nice area, really really well suited for what we do specifically. What kind of background is the, the other instructors there? Are they yeah, they're instructors. Sort of background are, to yourself, or yeah, they're, they're, the they're all very similar to me. Uh, they're all very similar to me. Um, uh, you know, our chief flying instructor Tim Simmons. Uh, our career paths have been basically with this company, and we have crisscrossed as as the paths have gone by, and and. Uh, and uh, we ended up at the school together. He's been here for, I don't know, 15 years at least. I think I've been here 17. And uh, we have a fairly small group of pilots. There is extremely low turnover at the school. Um, guys come here. They know what it's about. They work towards that in their career to come to the school. And there's some definite benefits. Um you know, we're not out in the field. We are, you know, everybody lives here and we, you know, have families and kids and get up in the morning and come to work. And and we generally don't work weekends. Um, certainly if we need to make up lost time for any reason or if we have charter work or forest fires or anything like that, definitely we work whenever we're required, but we generally don't work weekends. So it's a really desirable place for instructors to be. And all the instructors that have been chosen to come to the school are very very experienced at mountain flying so uh um you know generally uh, you know the lowest time guys we have here have six seven thousand hours of mountain time we 
presently have you know one guy that's a little bit lower time but has been brought up in our system and has worked towards being here and and uh, you know a phenomenal mountain pilot and and by that I mean is these guys are what makes them phenomenal is they're fairly laid back um you know not to don't get too excited about anything you know we fly with a tremendous number of different people we learn so much from our customers that come to us um, you know they respect us or or consider us to be the mountain flying experts but you know i've flown with uh, with different guys over the years that i learn from i learn little tricks and these are, you know, maybe instructors in the military or instructors down in the U.S. or they work for the Forest Service in, in Canada or the U.S. or in England or, you know, wherever in the world they come from. And uh, I learn from them. And uh, in the meantime, they learn a little bit about mountain flying. We're, we're definitely not the only place in the world to learn mountain flying. Um, but I think we're recognized as kind of being organized in what we do. So it's yeah, really looking- nice. When I was looking around, um, yeah, Top Flight kept coming up as you know as the place to go. So it sounds like you've got a, a great working environment there. So we, we do, we do. We're we're really fortunate. We're we're really fortunate, and you know the company has grown obviously in the years that that uh, one of the other fellows here, Mel Schiller, he's been here close to thirty years. Um, you know, and he's been with the company and he was an operational pilot for many years, but then he actually lived in Penticton. So they would use him as an instructor in the off season in the summers, he would go away flying and, and, uh, you know, a lot of people look at us and go, you're still there. Like, why would you do that? It's like, why would we leave? We, we've got an because yeah, I mean the rest of the industry is very sort of mobile. A- absolutely, um, it's yeah, transient, it's and nice. and obviously for many people that's just that makes it interesting for them. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, even our company relies on people like that through the summer when we hire a lot more contract guys. We re- we rely on people like that 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 you know they work here for a year or two and then they go and work there for a year or two. And, uh, you know, to be really honest, again, I, I learned so much from them because they go, well, you know, when I worked here, we did this. You know, what, what do you think about that? It's like, well, that's kind of cool. You know, I, I might just incorporate that in the way I do things. So, um, you know, there's a lot to be gained from that. But uh, but that's just different pilots. Uh, I know guys that they will fly for a different employer every single year. It doesn't make them good, bad or any different. It's just that's what interests them. And, uh, you know, for the group of us, we've been pretty steady. Uh, with the same employer. And, uh, you know, like I say, there's days where I could, and there's, but most of the days are pretty good. <laughs> so, uh, look, I think it's going to be pretty common for most folks. Oh, absolutely. Um, Peter- <laughs> absolutely. And, uh, and, you know, and, and, and of course, as a full time employee, we have, uh, you know, this, the, the pay is very structured and, yeah, they don't pay as much as other companies at times and other times when, when times are slow and all the other guys are unemployed, we're still employed. So, you know, um, the average, it works out extremely well. We have great benefits because we are a big company it has tremendous benefits, uh, which, uh, which obviously really help everybody involved. So, um, so they do that. And like I said earlier, great training. Um, great training attitude, great safety attitude, great maintenance. Uh, you know, we have the good fortune to be very successful at what we do, and uh, and because of that, we um, we just never have a you know. There's a maintenance issue; it's fixed. There's just okay. Just, Stop it! You're making us all jealous. It's just no question. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, I'll stop that. 
Uh, enough, enough. <laughs> no, that, um, that's all right. Uh, oh, Peter, what I was going to say, for listeners now, if we can dig into the, um, yeah, you've got made us all jealous and uh, we're, we're sitting back picturing you uh, in this beautiful airfield. <laughs> I, I am relaxed in a brand new facility uh, worth, <laughs> worth a fortune. Um, it is spectacular. It's probably the, the uh, foremost spectacular facility the company owns. Uh, so I, I'm also very fortunate there. But but this is where we bring customers, big customers. They will come actually to the school instead of Edmonton at times, and, and we'll have meetings with them here. And it's a great little – it's a little bit of a showpiece, to be honest, but uh, but it also very fortunate for us. Do you still have a bit more time now, Peter, if we actually dig into the, um, the guts of some of the content of the, the mountain flying course? Yes, absolutely. So I'll give you a bit of a description. Um we have some variations in the course, but our basic course is, is about 22 to 26 hours long. Generally, people are here for three weeks. When they start, they come in the first day. They don't have to pre-study or anything when they come in. We give them a mountain flying manual. So we have a – it's there's a published manual. I, I believe you can find it online, the Library of Congress in the U.S., um, and uh, it was uh, written by the various people that have worked here over the years, though, though actually that group is fairly small. Uh, one of the main people in the last 30 years has been Jan Rustad. He just recently retired, um, a real icon in the industry. Everybody knows Jan, has a tremendous amount of involvement with, uh, with uh, Transport Canada, our regulatory authority and stuff. And he's put this manual together, and we've got some pictures in there. At the end of each chapter, there's some review questions that you go over. It, it's a wonderful manual put together. Um, we do about a day and a half of ground school, and then we start flying. And then we do another gray, half a day of ground school and do some more flying, and then we do one more half day of ground school, and that completes all the ground school, and you continue flying. So there's roughly 15 flying days in, in those three weeks. Some ground school thrown in there and um, you walk out of here with a, uh, with a mountain flying course. And we do tailor them slightly because we do have some people that have a tremendous amount of experience come to us, but they need something official saying that they have completed a mountain flying course of some sort. And, and we'll supply that as well and we'll fly with them and we will um, evaluate as we go along. You know, we might go out the first day and we start the first day just like if you had uh, if you had no previous mountain experience as somebody who has a previous mountain experience. But the minute we recognize that, okay, this fellow has no issue with this, understands it perfectly, we move on to the next subject. So he might only actually, in the end, maybe complete five, seven hours and he's good to go. And he has what we consider a full mountain course because he's he's demonstrated and proven that he has all the highlights but um the general course about 22 to 20 26 hours that is tremendously expensive and and we do understand that so we do offer a bit of a a workaround where you come for one week and do the the um you know we just started this and we haven't exactly labeled it positively sort of the way it's going to remain but basically the basic mountain flying course the intermediate and the advanced and at the end of the advanced you'll have completed three weeks uh, the equivalent of those three weeks of training so um some of the people that come to us they say well you know we really want to take your course uh, we've heard a lot about it but there is no way we can ever get away for three weeks like i can come for a week at a time so we have tailored the course that way that we could do it one week at a time if you wish so Okay, and once you've done the three different weeks, and that counts towards the, the full course. Right, and, and at the first course, we will actually give you a certificate saying, hey, you've completed the basic 
um, requirement uh, in this first week for, to complete the first week. At the end of the second week, we will give you uh, certification to fly with the British Columbia Forest Service and, and some of the Forest Service that require it, and they respect our judgment in saying that, yeah, after at the end of two weeks, these guys are qualified to do the majority of the work that you would ever do for the Forest Service. And then the third week, we'll give you glaciers and, and more extreme stuff that most people in their career aren't going to be doing. And uh, and so and that would be the final. That would be the complete Canadian helicopters or HNZ mountain flying course. In that, when you break the course down, or just when you're flying, folks, Peter, is there like five, like five or seven, or is there a couple of key principles that you sort of overlay over all your mountain flying? Like, um, yeah, come back to the same. There thing is all some the time? key principles. You know, if I had to sum it up, and. and you know what? Almost any of your your followers could could go online and and Google uh, mountain flying and and get little snippets out of what is also in our manual. I, I saw online once there the one the manual still had the Okanagan label on it. It was the entire manual was scanned in and available online. So, so there are little bits available on there. But but you know if I had to summarize some key things is fly accurately, get the aircraft slowed down. And by fly accurately, I mean in mountain flying, and this becomes a bit of a challenge, you want to fly at times absolutely um, level flight. You don't want to be climbing or descending. You want to fly at a constant airspeed of 60 miles an hour, and you don't want to be banking and turning too much. So we want to fly, and we call it a contour crawl, where, where you fly at a constant level along the side of a mountain. And from that, that is going to tell give you some information. You're going to either have some low torque or high torque on your torque gauge compared to what it would take to fly the aircraft at 60 knots out in the middle of the valley. Take a big flat valley or a big prairie, go out in the middle of that, lift off, go and fly, go to maybe 2,000 feet, something of that nature, 3,000 feet, fly absolutely level flight and see what the torque is. That is called baseline torque. That is the minimum torque that it takes to fly that helicopter. And now we have a bit of a formula also for the R44 guys and the R22 guys. You know, if you're flying a piston, we have a bit of a formula for that as well. Uh, so you're just using the bottom of the drag curve? Yep, bottom of the drag or, curve. Yeah. Essentially the bottom of the drag curve. Absolutely. And and you see what torque that that gives you. So um, in in the old Jet Ranger, that's, that's about 45% torque, between 45 and 50% torque. And uh, now you fly along the side of a mountain. And if that torque is low, well, you're in upflowing air. If the torque is high, you're in downflowing air. So those upflowing, downflowing air are really critical. And then knowing that you're into wind or downwind is really critical. So the mountain course comprises of you being able to find what the wind is doing, which way is into wind, which way is downwind, where is the upflow, where is the downflow. Try and avoid the downflow if possible uh, because that's going to take more torque. And uh, those are the essentials. So people say, well, what can I do to prepare myself for coming to the mountain flying course? And it's like, if you are already flying in the mountains, um, try flying in the mountains at 60 knots and try and figure out for everywhere you fly along those mountains and stay a little bit closer to the actual mountain. Don't fly out in the middle of the valley. And, and try and figure out whether you're in upflow or downflow or into wind or downwind. And... and uh, once we explain how to tell if you're in upflow or downflow, people understand quite quickly. Into wind, down, 
wind, like whether you're whether you're flying into wind or you're flying downwind, can be determined by a multitude of of ways. Um, you know, we're believers in that this day and age, probably a hundred percent of the helicopters in Canada have GPSs in them. You've got a ground speed readout on there. You can fly in two exactly opposite directions past your landing spot. And the lowest ground speed is the into wind direction. And now a lot of you guys sure. are thinking out there, well, that's not necessarily, well, how do you know the wind isn't slightly on your left side or slightly on your right? That you're mostly into wind, but it's slightly on your left and slightly on your right. Well, that you can figure out by keeping the ball in trim. Keep that ball in between the white uprights and the nose will point towards the wind. That's where that 60 knots comes into play because at 100 knots, you're not going to be able to tell that. You're going to see such minor differences between your ground speed into wind and downwind. Once you slow the aircraft down and fly the aircraft accurately, you are going to figure that out pretty quickly. And then, believe it or not, yeah, with that crab angle and drift. Yeah, absolutely. And believe it or not, that is the, the basis of the mountain flying course. And, and we throw in lots of other things like, you know, make all turns away from the hill, never climb or turn towards rising terrain, you know, all sorts of little rules um, on final approach and, and the approaches and departures. We tend to make the approaches very shallow, minimizes the rate of descent, uh, minimizes the power required to stop that rate of descent, minimizes the chances of vortex ring state. And, uh, you know, little details that people forget is like, well, I'm only coming down at 300 feet a minute looking on my VSI. Well, that, that shouldn't be a problem. But remember, if wind is coming up towards you, it's coming up a big, long slope of a hill, and it's going up at 400 feet a minute. Yeah, so the, additive The effect. rotor disc thinks, hmm, that, no, that, 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 that wind is coming awful close to about 750 feet a minute. You know, by God, as we slow down here, I think I'll go into vortex ring state. And all of a sudden, the bottom drops out of it, and it's like, how the hell did that happen? I had a minimal rate of descent, uh, you know, but not compared to what the wind is doing, you didn't. So so there's a few little tricks that, that can catch you that once you're aware of, people start to understand why we really advocate the rather shallow approach. On the other hand, when you do a shallow approach, we want you to have a good escape route. So now the challenge is, is there's a landing area. How can I make this approach as into wind as possible, staying away from downflowing air if I possibly can, and trying to maybe stay in the upflow air a little bit and still have a good escape route the entire way? So these are the kind of things that we will teach you on the mountain course. And, and these are good tips for your, for your listeners that it's, I, we don't pretend for a minute to tell you that this is rocket science. There is a little bit of science involved in it. There's no doubt, but it's not rocket science. So even my explanation may get those guys thinking out there a little bit. Okay, shallower, slightly shallower approach, avoid vortex ring state, try and make it into wind as possible. Um, you know, don't get tricked by the GPS because they're, if you're in a no wind condition at 5,000 feet, 20 degrees, and you're flying at 60 knots, GPS will read 65 knots because you haven't corrected your airspeed for true airspeed. So let's just talk about that for a little bit because, again, folks going through training or who are operating at sea level the whole time, uh, can you just talk a little bit more about the uh, the true airspeed effect at height? Well, 
it's quite straightforward. As the density altitude increases, your airspeed will read, or your airspeed is the one you have control over, let me put it that way. So if you fly at 60 knots, the higher the density altitude, the higher the ground speed reading will read because the air going into the this is very simplistic because I'm not a, a science whiz, but the air going into the pitot tube is less dense. And that way it essentially reads low. So so, so when you're approaching a approaching the hill or coming in for your landing you actually be having a higher ground speed than what you're, you're seeing in the cockpit as far as you're Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. So uh, so that's in, in a no-wind condition. So now, obviously, we try and take advantage of the fact that now we're coming into wind. Well, that's going to make the airspeed even higher, give us a slower ground speed, and that's more desirable as we come into land. From a slower ground speed, uh, we want to be at a safe airspeed, but we want to be at the slowest ground speed we could possibly be at. Uh, because now, once we start the approach, the goal is to arrive over your landing area at zero ground speed. And uh, if we still have some wind indicating on the airspeed indicator, that's wonderful. That's going to save us uh, a little bit of power. It's going to make the aircraft more stable during the entire approach. Uh, so it works very well. And we just have to be a little bit aware of upflowing air can cause the aircraft to or you know sort of trick the rotor because it's only we're only coming down at 200 feet a minute or 300 feet a minute but the wind's coming up at us at four or five hundred feet a minute the combined rate uh the disc thinks hmm you know i think i'll go into vortex ring state as we drop below uh below translation so got to be a little bit aware of that just before we started recording you, you spoke about um you know some people have this impression of of mountain pilots being gung-ho and racing into pads and throwing themselves off the side of the cliff and yeah. accelerating away uh, <laughs> did you just want to talk about the fact that that's not quite how it works no no exactly you know um i think i think people are a little bit shocked uh, at the mountain course that when you get out there it's like you know guys you'll hear them chatting in the background to each other uh, the military pilots and stuff and they're going i never went over 60 knots today I don't think I've ever done that on a flight because, uh, you know, we right from the minute they leave the airport, we sort of get them into that routine of if you slow down, you can feel the aircraft will react to the wind better. And that is what we want. We want to observe the aircraft reaction and then from that determine what's happening with the wind and, and how this density altitude is going to affect the aircraft and how uh, this, this wind, the upflowing air, the downflowing air is going to affect the aircraft. So, um, you know, obviously, or I shouldn't say obviously, but if we are in downflowing air, it is going to take more torque to do everything you do. So try and understand this, because uh, I'll say it fairly quickly. You are in the hover, a jet ranger hovers around oh, 65% or so, somewhere in there, 65, 70, somewhere in that that range. And on at baseline torque, it's roughly 45, 50%. And so now I'm going to fly near my landing area that I want to land on the side of this mountain. And I realize that, oh my gosh, it's taking 55, 60% torque just to fly by here. So that's 10% more torque than baseline torque. So that means... As I come in and I come to the hover there, it could take as much as 10% more torque to come to the hover. And, and it's not a science. It's not, they're not exact numbers. But now, 
at least I have before I go in there, I have an idea that, well, can I afford 10% more torque? Normal hovers around 70. Uh, yeah, I can afford 80% torque. Uh, that'll work great. You know, that, that'll work no problem. So now I go into that landing having some concept that I'm not horribly underpowered for this landing. I'm going to be taking a bit more torque than normal, but uh, it's certainly within limits for the aircraft, so we can go in there and land safely. And, and that's, again, uh, one of the other principles behind it is to, is to see what the torque is in normal in a safe flight condition and compare that to, um, you know, add or subtract however much torque you think you need to add or subtract, and you determine that by the difference between baseline torque and the torque that it actually requires you to fly by your landing area. The key thing here is, and I cannot overemphasize it, is you have to be in level flight for this to work accurately. Absolutely level flight. You cannot be climbing or descending. And everybody goes, well, I do that fairly well. Mm, now we throw in the complication factor, and that is, is mountain flying illusion. If the ground below you is going climbing up and going down, and one minute it's you know, 200 feet below you, and the next minute it's 4,000 feet below you, you are going to struggle a little bit keeping the aircraft straight and level because most of us are VFR pilots. And this requires you to constantly monitor your airspeed and altitude because we don't have those constant references. If Picture yourself flying over a flat prairie or a, a desert of some sort. The ground is flat. After a while, your brain correlates the speed that you're flying at it correlates it to ground speed it recognizes how quickly the terrain is coming past the edge of the window and stuff now if we fly closer to the train it'll appear faster and, and we've learned to deal with that we say well we're closer to the ground it's going to appear faster but my airspeed is still the same as it was before and as i fly further away from the train the airspeed is going to remain the same but it's visually going to look slower well, that happens constantly in mountain flying. It's happening. So it's a bit of a challenge to fly that accurate airspeed. And, and for those of you that may want to go out and try this, there's nothing unsafe about it. But you, I challenge you to fly at a constant altitude. And you'll say, well, you know, I turned up this valley and I ended up climbing a little bit. Well, you know, there was train below me. It's like, no, you climbed because you have a displaced horizon in the mountains if you fly towards the mountains. The horizon our brain thinks is that we're going to be using is the one at the top of the mountain. That may not be the correct horizon. And so it's very common that as you fly towards higher terrain, that you subconsciously and uh, um, without your knowledge, you, you're climbing slightly and the airspeed is diminishing slightly. And then you go, oh, oh how did that happen? And you'll correct uh, you know, uh, forward cyclic, readjust the aircraft attitude to get back to your 60 knots. And you go, yeah, okay, I'll look at your altimeter, look at your airspeed. Okay, I'm 60 knots, constant altitude again. The moment you look out the window, you will subconsciously pull back on those controls. <laughs> and it's extremely yeah. frustrating. And, you know, I've been doing this for a lot of years, and, and I still struggle with it. I'm no better than the average guy out there. It's just I'm anticipating it a bit more than they are. So I'm still like, holy crap, it's climbing again, damn it. You know, I'm trying to be a good instructor here and demonstrate this correctly, and it's still climbing. So um, it, it's a challenge for everyone. And, and so fly accurately. 
try some of this stuff. It's honestly, it's not unsafe to go out and do it. Peter, that that is fantastic. And obviously, this course runs for three weeks, so we're only ever going to touch the you know a, a incredibly thin small amount in a, in, a, in a short interview. So That's right. look, we're getting about time there, so we might might wrap that up. Yep. And um, yeah, look, it's. it's that's so interesting. Like, there's just so much to go into there. And- there is. And we have a variety of aircraft that we use here. We, we're Lately, we've been using a 407. We're just trying it out because, believe it or not, our company operates. The, we have the largest fleet of A-Stars in the world, but um, nobody's really asked for the 407. And finally, we said, well, let's get one and just play with it. And at least we know something about it if somebody wants to operate one. So we have a 407 here. We've got three C-120s. We've got a 206 left over, and, and we've got an A-Star. So we've got kind of the whole gamut. We don't normally have the big machines here. Um, you asked some other really great questions that I, I would love to answer, but I realize we're running out of a bit of time. And, and uh, you know, you, answer, you asked a really good one that is always concerned for us. What about noise complaints? Well, the EC120 has been a great, great machine. It really is quiet. Uh, I think I think that the people in the valley here in the Penticton Valley, because we are in a valley, uh, really appreciate that we've gone to that aircraft. Unfortunately, they were really dismayed with the fact that the 407 came into the valley because it is a voraciously noisy aircraft. But we we avoid uh, the people that we know we need to avoid because they're very sensitive to it. Uh, other people are very tolerant of us. We have operated in this valley for 63 years, and they're very, very tolerant of us. And, and they will tell their friends, you know, their friends will say, oh, look at that, you know, that helicopter. It's so noisy. And they go, oh, well, you know, that's Canadian helicopters and, and now HNZ Top Flight. Uh, well, they do the training for the military and all of a sudden everything becomes okay. Uh, but we do realize that that is always a tiny bit of a sore point and we make every effort to uh, avoid annoying people and we'll move off, go to different areas. What else can I tell you? We have pilots coming from all over the world. We have a sort of our backbone course is uh, the Canadian military teaching the Canadian military pilots, helicopter pilots to fly in the mountains. But by and large, our largest customers from the U.S., uh, U.S. Navy, Army, Air Force, all the divisions uh, do come up here. And uh, police departments, uh, all the local police departments in Canada, we look after uh, quite a few of them from the U.S. And uh, one of our uh, pilots here has just recently rejoined the company. Um, and Vern is uh, has 12 years of police experience behind him as a police pilot. So we have that little bit of advantage to us. And we are getting into night vision goggle training. Uh, at the moment, we're certainly not experts at it, but we hope to develop a, a bit of a course for night vision goggle mountain flying uh, with the help of our customers that are asking us to do that. So uh, that's that's uh, in the future for us, uh, hopefully within the next few months. It's a, that's a real mixing pot of um, pilots coming through then. Uh, Peter, oh, do. If, people yeah. looking for more, if people are looking for more information, uh, what's the best website address for them to go to yeah. find out more about the Yeah, um, CanadianHelicopters.com. Obviously, we have a website. It's not the greatest website in the world, to be honest, because it's not really meant for advertising. But uh, you know what? Um, phone us. Give us a phone call. And uh, or email us, and, and you'll find that online quite easily. Uh, you could phone us, email us. We are always willing to talk. Uh, after all, uh, you guys out there that are asking the questions are eventually, hopefully, someday, maybe our customers. Um, and uh, um, we, 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 we freely share all the information we have, you know, short of publishing the, the mountain manual online i'm sure it's already out there some way or another we we try and keep that a little closer to us that 
you get the you get that book uh, when you attend the course. It's kind of a badge of honor getting that. Uh, but uh, I'm sure there's lots out there that you can read. And by and large, mountain flying around the world uses much of the same principles. Um, I think we really harp on the fact of the shallow approach. That's something that's a little more Canadian helicopter-ish. Um, and I think we harp on the fact of you got to have some ground school. This is not something you can go out and do in, in, in two or three hours. It really is not. Um, but uh, other than that, you know, uh, we would love to field any any calls or any questions that anybody has. And when I get this recording up online, there'll be a section underneath where, uh, if you're listening, you can ask some questions. And if folks have questions there, Peter, are you happy to jump on and, and, and put some replies absolutely. on the uh, website? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, you know, we'll use my uh, my company email for that. And uh, absolutely, uh, we're, we more than welcome that. And if I can't answer it because I'm busy, somebody else will answer it. Um, and some of the answers might be short, but then ask if it didn't answer your question, then ask again or ask in more detail or whatever. Uh, we're happy to do it. You know, I, I can easily uh, I can easily fire off a bunch of emails to people. So not a problem at all. Peter, thank you so much for your time today. So folks have been listening to Peter Costa from Canadian Helicopters. And he's working out of the uh, HNZ um, top flight at uh, is it Pickerton? Penticton. Uh, Penticton, yes. sorry, in, uh, in <laughs> British Columbia. So thanks so much for your time, Peter. Uh, you're, you're very welcome, Mick. Uh, it was great talking to you. There you go. And I opened up the interview before Peter started talking and just said, you know, look what a, a gentleman he was. And so hopefully after listening to that and hearing that, uh, you agree. And look, I spoke with Peter a, a little bit longer after uh, we stopped recording there and he's just one of those really down-to-earth guys but so much experience. So that was a lot of fun for me. And I hope for you too, listening, and you got a lot of gear out of that. So next episode, we're talking to uh, Bob Fierce. Bob runs the uh, well, several courses, but one course in particular about flying in the wire environment. So we'll go through, you know, some of the things you can do to keep yourself and your helicopter clear of wires, and the the, the risk and that it actually poses, and the fatalities that it causes in our industry. So that's next week with uh, Bob Fierce. You've been listening to the Rotary Wing Show. I'm Mick Cullen. If you're looking for more information on today's episode or you want to leave a comment, then head over to rotarywingshow.com to be part of the conversation. You'll be able to check out the archive, and obviously this is the first episode, but in future you'll be able to find all the show episodes there on the website. If you like the show, don't forget to please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. Thoughts and opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and the interviewees and don't reflect those of their employers. Please join us next week for another episode of the Rotary Wing Show. Till then, fly safe.